spiritually. It was like, okay, Lord, I do. I thank you for these trials and tribulations because these trials and tribulations grow me. And in fact, Lord, I ask you to bring them into my life to make me stronger. Now, I'm not to that point, folks. But I am starting to slowly realize, okay, Lord, when you back me into a corner and I have no solution but God, it grows my faith, it tests my faith, and it does make me stronger. And I do count it all joy because the testing of my faith produces patience. You have taken me deeper. And Lord, you took me through the day of adversity, pressure, or trouble. You revealed to me the areas I was weak in. And now, Lord, I want to become stronger in you. Peter says this. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I am supposed to rejoice because these are trials and tribulations that are needed, that only last a little while, that my faith, the genuineness of my faith is being tested. Once again, resort back to maybe if you were back in high school or something like that, the idea of lifting. You looked forward to those days of trying to push the limits to see how much farther you could take it. Maybe you were involved in athletics one time and you had a time you wanted to beat in a run. You looked forward to that. But then we get saved. And we say, Lord, don't ever push me. Make it as comfortable as possible. As In fact, if a trial or tribulation comes my way, which will grow me and take me deeper in Jesus, which will make me use spiritual muscles that I have not used in a long time, Lord, no, please, no. Boy, we got that backwards. Lord, and in your infinite wisdom and in your infinite love and in your infinite grace, allow whatever trial you need to come into in my life to mold me and shape me to be more like Jesus Christ. Because, Lord, the reality is, in the day of adversity, pressure, or trouble, sometimes I faint. And, Lord, I don't want that. Help me to be more like you. Push me, Lord. Push me and allow this. Allow difficult situations to grow you. I have an Old Testament example of this. Can you go with me back to 1 Kings 18? I like to go jump back to the Old Testament and look at example Paul talked about in Corinthians. He says these Old Testament saints were given to us examples. Examples of what to do and examples of what not to do. So I want to talk about Elijah for a second here. 1 Kings 18. But I want to do something different. I want to work backwards. I want to start at the pinnacle of Elijah's ministry. But then work backwards to see how he got to that point. Think about this. You see some of these pro athletes and you see the physical shape they're in, what they can do. You see the end result. What did they do behind the scenes to get to that point? We see the end result of Elisha's life. Even if you just study out the New Testament with Elisha. He he shows up at the transfiguration of Jesus. That's pretty impressive. He's mentioned in the book of James as an example of the power of prayer and faith. That's pretty impressive. You make a pretty good case. He's one of the two witnesses in the book of Revelation. That's pretty impressive. That's a great resume just from the New Testament alone. Well, what happened in the Old Testament? Well, let's start with the story that we probably know the most, 1 Kings 18. A little bit of background here. The nation has been divided. You have the ten northern tribes known as Israel. You have the two southern tribes known as Judah. The northern tribes are run by a king by the name of Ahab, who has the most despicable wife of all time named Jezebel. Baal worship is commonplace. That is the religion of Israel is Baal worship. They've given up on God. God sends Elijah to this place called Mount Carmel, and he says, we're going to have a little battle of the prophets here. The prophets of Baal versus the prophets of God. 
1 Kings 18, verse 20. So Ahab, the king of Israel, sent all for all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel. And Elijah came to all the people and said, How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if it's Baal, follow him. But the people answered them, Not a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left, a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Please note, one against 450. Not even 450. One against an entire nation, against the king, the king's wife, who are openly supporting this false religion. This takes a lot of guts to show up and say, we're going to have a little prayer off here. 450 versus one, a whole nation versus one, a king and a queen versus one. So they have this idea what they're going to do, 23. Therefore, let them give us two bulls and let them choose one bull for themselves. Cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire under it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood, but put no fire under it. Then you call in the name of your gods and I will call in the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. So all the people answered and said, it is well spoken. Okay, great idea. You build your altar, we'll build our altar. Whatever one gets the fire, that's the one of the Lord. Jump ahead, please. Same chapter. Verse 36, the people of Baal, the prophets of Baal, they try all day. They can't get it. No fire, no nothing. Elijah comes up, verse 36, came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and I am your servant and that I've done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that these people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice, and the wood and the stones and the dust, and it licked up the water that was in the trench. Now when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces, and they said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and executed them there. Man, wouldn't you like to be able to do that? That'd be a great little party trick, wouldn't it? You just call fire down from heaven just like that? How does he have the faith to do this? How does he have the power to do this? Taking on 450 people, taking on a nation, a country, a king, and a queen. Now let's work backwards. What else has Elijah done? Verse 17 of chapter 17. Just go back one chapter. Now it happened after these things that the son of the woman who owned the house became sick. And his sickness was so serious that there was no breath left in him. So she said to Elijah, what have I to do with you, O man of God? Have you come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to kill my son? And he said to her, give me your son. So he took him out of her arms and carried him to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his own bed. Then he cried out to the Lord and said, O Lord, my God, have you also brought tragedy on the widow with whom I lodged by killing her son? And he stretched himself out on the child three times and cried out to the Lord and said, O Lord, my God, I pray, let this child's soul come back to him. Then the Lord heard the voice of Elijah and the soul of the child came back to him and he revived And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now by this I know you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord is in your mouth is the truth. So we have him taking on 450 prophets, defeating a king, defeating a queen, taking on false worship. We now have him raising the dead. Talk about strong faith. Go back to our verse in Proverbs. If your faith falters in the day of adversity, how small is your strength and faith? This man has it. Now, just bear with me, okay? Just a little bit more. Back up a little bit. Same chapter, verse 8. The word of the Lord came to him, saying, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. See, I've commanded a widow there to provide for you. He arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, indeed, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called her and said, Please bring me a little water and a cup that I may drink. 
And as she was going to get it, he called to her and said, Please bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. So she said, As the Lord your God lives, I do not have any bread. Only a handful of flour and a bin and a little oil in a jar. And see, I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat and die. Now stop right there. Don't read verse 13. Please, just try to obey. Please don't read verse 13. Some of you know what's going to happen. For some of you don't know, I'm leaving you on a cliffhanger. I think verse 13 is one of the strangest verses in the Bible and the amount of faith that it takes for Elijah to do what he did here. And this is why. The whole prophets of Baal thing, yeah, that, that's amazing. Fire down from heaven, that's amazing. Raising the dead, that's amazing. But the guts it took for him to ask verse 13. Look at 13. Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but make me a small cake from it first and bring it to me and afterwards make some for yourself and your son. Think about what he just said. Hey, I'm showing up at your house unexpected. You have enough food left for your, literally your last meal for you and your son. That's what you told me. Hey, could you make me something to eat first? As you are going to now go starve to death? See, Elijah is saying, walk in faith. How can he say walk in faith? We're going to get to that in a little bit. But the faith it took him in verse 13 to have the audacity to ask for the food first. Not because he was selfish. Not because he said, it's all about me. Because he knew what his Lord could do. I think about that a lot as a pastor. Sometimes I ask people to do stuff. And I'm thinking, you know what? I'm not asking you to do anything I wouldn't do. And so therefore, if we're willing to live this out as a family, as a group, as a body of Christ, then then let's, let's push ourselves here. Lord, put us in positions where we're taking on prophets of Baal and fire down from heaven and raising the dead and in faith trusting you can provide food. Because, Lord, you're big. Take a look at 14. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, The bin of flour shall not be used up, nor shall the jar of oil run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. So she went and did according to the word of Elijah. And she and, his, she and he and her household ate for many days. The bin of flour is not used up, nor did the jar of oil run dry according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Elijah. Now I'm going to get to my final point here. If your faith falters in the day of adversity, it reveals how small your strength is. How could Elijah have the faith and strength to take on prophets, take on a king and queen, raise the dead, tell a widow, feed me first, because God is so powerful, he'll provide for you. Now we get back to the first story of where Elisha got his foundation of faith from. Verse 1, chapter 17. And Elijah the Tishbite. Of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives, but for whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Get away from here and turn eastward and hide by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. And it will be that you shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord, for he went and stayed by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And it happened after a while that the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Do you want to have the faith of Elijah? You have to put yourself or be allowed to put yourself in a situation where you realize, Lord, it has to be you. Take a look at the position Elijah is in now at the beginning of chapter 17. He's taking on the king. He is hiding... Why? Because they're mad at him. 
the one keeping the rain from coming. So he has to hide. He has to hide by a brook. And not only hide by a brook, he has to trust birds to bring him breakfast. Birds to bring him supper. And not only that, take a look at seven. After a while, the brook dried up. He has to watch his water supply every day dwindle a little more. Think that through for a second. Hiding for his life, trusting birds to bring breakfast, birds to bring supper, and watching your water supply literally dry up in front of you. That's why he could tell the widow, God will provide the food. How do you know? Because I had birds feed me breakfast. I had birds feed me supper. I can raise the dead. How can you raise the dead? Because I had birds come and give me breakfast and supper, and I watched the water brook dry up. Elijah, you have enough guts to take on 450 prophets of Baal. That's nothing compared to trusting birds to bring you breakfast and supper. Here's the deal. Allow yourself to be put in a position like that where you have nothing. You have nothing to rely on but God. To the point of birds bringing food and water drying up. After that point, what's difficult? Once you stop and realize what the Lord can do and what he's done in your life and you've watched your food be supplied by animals and water drying up and you still know the Lord's going to take care of you, everything else in 17 and 18 is nothing. But here's the deal. Back to Proverbs now. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. You have to allow the Lord to put you by that brook and to trust him in all things. If you're not allowing him to let you trust him, How are you ever going to get stronger? You're going to learn to run by not running? You're going to get stronger by not lifting? No. You have to put yourself in a position where you allow your body to go through things that are difficult to say, Lord, I trust you. So, Lord, you've put me here and I trust you with this. Allow difficult situations to grow you. Count it all joy when you fall into trials that the knowing the testing of your faith produces patience. Greatly rejoice that you've been grieved by various trials that the genuineness of your faith has grown. Here's the deal, though, and I don't mean to be mean. I'm just going to be honest. Some of you don't want that. You don't want your height chart to get bigger. You're happy to stay right where you're at. And if that's where you want to stay, God ain't going to force you. But for those that want to grow and go deeper, be prepared to sit by a brook and fed by birds and let the water dry up. Okay, not literally, but just you get what I mean, right? Be prepared to allow yourself to be put in those situations because that is how your faith is going to grow. And once you learn to trust God in that, everything else becomes easy because you said, Lord, I have already seen what you can do and those difficult situations have grown us. Now, continuing on here in Proverbs, what's our next difficult situation that we need to grow in? Take a look at verse 11. Deliver those who are drawn toward death. Hold back those stumbling to the slaughter. Boy, I don't like that verse. Drawn towards death, stumbling towards the slaughter. It looks like we're talking about two different people here. Drawn towards death. You guys know this. I say this a lot. Every person you talk to is spending eternity in heaven or hell. Every single person. Every single person. And it just absolutely amazes me as believers. If you're here this morning and you're born again and saved, you have the truth of salvation. But yet... While we're waiting in line at Walmart, we want to talk to a complete stranger about how much rain we've had. That's, that's not uncomfortable. That's not awkward to talk about rain, talk about weather, sunshine. I guarantee, I guarantee today that if you go out into public, you will talk to a stranger and one of you will say, oh man, beautiful day, isn't it? You will. 
Because that's what we got to talk about. People are drawn towards death and stumbling to the slaughter. But we're more comfortable talking about sunshine and rain and sports. We have to stop and change the way we think. And we need to allow ourselves to have these conversations that are difficult with non-believers because I care so much about your soul that I want to know where you stand with the Lord. Not only that, you need to be willing to have conversations with people that are brothers and sisters in the Lord that are stumbling to the slaughter because you care enough about them to stop and say, listen, I love you, man, but that thing you got going on in your life right now, that's not glorifying God and that's going to come back to bite you. I got to care enough about you to warn you that that is not going to come out good for you. And in the name of Jesus, I implore you, think about changing it and seeking God on it. Because people are stumbling towards the slaughter and drawn towards death. Book of James talks about this. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. If you see a brother or sister in the Lord going towards sin and spiritual death, love them enough to get involved with their lives to say, I'm concerned. I mean, I just I use this analogy, and it's an absurd analogy, but if I see one of my kids out on the middle of the road, and there is a semi barreling towards them, I will run full speed at my child, yelling, screaming, to the point of tackling them to get them out of the way. From the outside perspective, it will look mean, it will look angry, and it will look violent. But it saves their life, and it's done in love. But yet, we're completely okay with watching people be brothers and sisters in the Lord, stumbling to the slaughter. I don't know if I should say anything. The Bible's telling you to. So since the Bible's telling you to, we need to have those conversations that are difficult, that are awkward, and say, I love you enough to do this. Psalm 141, you don't need to turn there. Psalm 141.5 says this, Let the righteous strike me, and it shall be kindness. Let him rebuke me, and it shall be an as excellent oil. When we are struck by the righteous, it's kindness, it's love. Someone loves me enough to stop and say, I am concerned about you, and I care about you. Look at the other verses with me here real quick. Look at Proverbs 24, verse 25. But those who rebuke the wicked will have delight, and a good blessing will come upon them. Guys, I'm selfish. I want to be blessed. I'm blessed... By going to people that I care and love about and saying, listen, this is not good for you spiritually. And I love you enough to come up and say, I want to tell you this is what the Bible says and this is what you should do. And guess what? I'm blessed by doing that. I want to be blessed. I want to do what's right. Take a look here. Move ahead. Proverbs 24, uh, 26. He who gives a right answer kisses the lips. I like how it says the New Living Translation. An honest answer is like a kiss of friendship. Honest enough, loving enough to speak truth to people, to say, this is hurting you spiritually. Jump ahead two chapters, Proverbs 27. Proverbs 27, please. Verse 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Sometimes you have to be a good enough friend to wound your friend. To give them the kiss when they're wrong, it's deceitful. Think of somebody else in the Bible who gave a kiss under deceit. His name was Judas. 
You want the faithful wounds of a friend. And jump back one verse to verse 5, same chapter, Proverbs 27. Open rebuke is better than love carefully concealed. I will never understand this. That you can look at me and say how much you deeply, passionately love your friend, but you don't love them enough to correct them? You don't love them enough to say, listen, what you're doing is biblically, spiritually wrong, and I care enough about you to say, i got to talk to you about this. Boy, if you guys love me, I hope you'll correct me. Because if you're not willing to correct somebody who's wrong, if you're not willing to go to them and say, listen, what you're doing is not of God, this is not of God's will, and i got to tell you this, then how can you say you love them? How can you say, I care about your soul? See, here's the problem with these extremes. One extreme is just we want to ignore it. Some of you hate confrontation. You hate any type of tension or stress. So let's just stick our heads in the sand and ignore sin. That's not biblical. The other extreme is this. Some of you want to bring back public stoning. You do. You want to look at everybody's sin and you want to be judge, jury, and executioner and you want to tell everybody it's wrong and then you want to bring them up in front of the church on a regular basis and you want to cast stones. That's not biblical either. What's biblical is doing what these verses are. To say, I love you enough to wound you. I love you enough to kiss you. I love you enough to say, I'm concerned about you. And here, here's my list. And I'm going to go through this list multiple times with you. When you're ready to go to someone, this is what you do. You make sure you're prayed up, number one. Make sure you're spirit-led, number two. Spirit-led. Please note, spirit-led. Not led in anger. Not led in emotions. Not led in revenge. Not led in I told you so. And not led on a power trip. I know people who get their kicks off pointing out other people's sin. They love it. They would love to have the gift of pointing out other people's sin, and it's not in the Bible. You're doing this when you're prayed up and spirit-led. You're doing it humbly, in love, in truth, with the goal of restoring The goal is always restoration. Always. The goal is not stoning them or ignoring it. Now here's the problem I run into as a pastor. People get mad at me because they want me to ignore sin and we can't. And then people get mad at me because they want me to stone people, but I can't. The goal is to restore them. And I need to be prayed up, spirit-led, and let me repeat this. Not in anger, not in emotion, not in revenge, not in I told you so, and not on a power trip. Done humbly in love and truth with the goal of restoring. I see a lot of people want to correct people, and they got the truth part down. But they sure don't got humbleness, love, and restoration down. You need all of them. All of them. And you go to this person and you tell them that you love them enough to say, listen, what you're doing is not biblical. This is not glorifying God. And I want you to be blessed and I want you to do what's right for the glory of God and for the body of Christ. It's another teaching for another day to do to say what they will say when they accept it or reject it. Right now we're just talking about this. Can we be loving enough to do that? To say, I love you enough to wound you. I love you enough to be honest with you. I love you enough to deliver you from stumbling to the slaughter. Go with me to Galatians 6.1, please. Here's a great New Testament pattern of how to do it. Now, as we're going to Galatians 6.1, let's go to the reasons why we don't. Because we don't want to do this. No one wants to have these conversations. long time ago, there was a couple out here at church that um, stuff was going on that shouldn't have been going on, and they were really heavy on the heart, and I knew I needed to talk to them about it. 
So I started really praying about it, and I didn't want to. These are not fun conversations. And so I started praying about it, and then they didn't show up. First week, they didn't show up. Okay, I'm still praying over it. Second week, didn't show up. Third week, didn't show up. By this time, I'm like, oh, Lord, thank you. They left the church, <laughs> you know? Um, I don't have to deal with it. Fourth week, they show up. And as soon as they show up, it was time, I knew. Pulled them aside, talked to them, hopefully loved them, spoke truth. Next week, they didn't come back. Next week, they didn't come back. Third week, they didn't come back. And by this time, I'm thinking, okay, Lord, I've done my part. They come back now again. And came over and thanked me. I said, that's what they needed to hear. Sigh of relief. Now, here's the problem, though. It just keeps happening again and again and again. I wish we could reach a point, and that's the point of heaven, where there's no longer any rebuke or correction or sin. But until that time, you're sinful, I'm sinful, and if we love each other, we love each other enough to go to one another after being prayed up, spirit-led, humbly, in love, in truth, with the goal of restoring, to say, hey, we need to sit down and talk. Because I love you enough to wound you, I love you enough to be honest with you, and I love you enough to say you're stumbling towards the slaughter. Galatians 6.1 talks about this. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. But like I said, what are the reasons we don't do this? Number one, this is what I've seen over the years. The reason we don't want to get involved in other people's life and maybe correct them is, number one, my past. I've done the same things that they're doing wrong. I'm a hypocrite. Why would I want to go talk to them about it? Years ago, I had a husband and wife that their daughter was getting involved in something that she shouldn't get involved in. They came to me and said, I'm concerned about her. I said, why don't you go talk to her? We can't talk to her. Why can't we talk to her? Because the stuff she's doing now is the exact same stuff that we did. and It would be wrong for us to go talk to her. Get over it. You're a new creation in Christ Jesus. The old is gone, the new is come. You go to them and say, listen, we did what you're doing. We saw it. We have the scars from it, the pain from it, the hurt from it. We have learned from it. And let us teach you what we wish we would have known when we were your age. Don't let the past keep you from doing it. Okay, number two, how about the present? Well, I can't go talk to anybody. Why? Because of what I'm doing presently right now. I have planks sticking out my eyes, two by four sticking out my eyes. So for me to go pick a speck out of somebody else's eye would be wrong. Now let me be lovingly firm and straightforward with you. If you can't go talk to somebody because of the sin presently in your life right now, that should convict you enough to say, Lord, why am I doing these things then? That should be enough of a conviction for you to stop and say, I'm wrong. I'm so wrong I can't go talk to somebody else. Then now's the time to say, Lord, I want to be made right with you. Take the plank out because I don't want my present sin to keep me from representing Jesus to other people. Number three, fear. You fear that person more than you fear God. You have to work with them. You have to live with them. You're married to them. You have to go to church with them. You have to spend countless hours a week with them. So you fear them more than you fear God. And so you would rather ignore the situation... And have happy little fake family reunions and conversations. Than to say, I care enough about you spiritually to realize the relationship may be hurt for a while. But good golly, we've got to have this conversation. Don't fear man more than you fear God. And the fourth one, I don't know what to call this one, so I call this the excuse excuse. You just make excuses. I've heard excuses before. Well, I know they're wrong. And everybody seems to be telling them they're wrong. So I want to be the one voice that they can come to and talk to and won't tell them they're wrong. 
No, you just don't want to tell them they're wrong. You just want to be the nice person amongst all the bad people. You want to be the good cop, not the bad cop. Biblically, you can't do that, folks. If you know they're wrong, you've got to lovingly tell them. You've got to lovingly get involved and say, listen, I've prayed over this, I've fasted over this, and I've got to come tell you this is not glorifying God, and this is going to hurt you spiritually. And you claim to be a Christian, you claim to be born again. This is not the biblical way to do this. I don't know how to receive it, but I know we need to say it. Take a look at Galatians 6, 1, one more time. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Let's just break it down simply. Brethren, we're talking about the body of Christ, family. Can't really go correct non-believers. They need to come to know Jesus Christ first. But people that claim to be Christians, they're the brethren. The body of Christ, the family. Number two, they're overtaken. They're caught. They're caught in a trespass. We would say they're tripped up. They fell into it. They're in a trespass. They're in sin. You who are spiritual, you who are godly, you who are mature, go do this. And if you stop and say, good, I have an out. I am not godly, I'm not spiritual, and I'm not mature. That's a deeper issue, folks. We're supposed to be godly, spiritual, and mature. Restore. Restore them. Help them. It's actually a medical term. means a dislocated bone. The goal, once again, is not to ignore it. The goal is not, once again, to stone them. The goal is to restore them. And a spirit of gentleness, godliness, humbly, meekness. Not power trip. Not I'm the most powerful one in the room because I can point out your sin but in a gentle, godly, humble meekness. Go back to all those verses in Proverbs. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Honesty. Caring enough about them to say, I care. (sighs) Considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Watch yourself. Careful of the pride. There's a humbleness in this. Because we all need to be corrected at one time or another. And let me repeat now for the third time. You've prayed over it. Spirit-led. Not anger, not emotion, not revenge, not I told you so, not a power trip. You're doing it humbly, in love, in truth, with the goal of restoring. That's your biblical mandate to do. Last verse, Proverbs 24, please, verse 12. And if you're still trying to get out of it, here's our kicker, folks. Proverbs 24. Let's rewind one verse to verse 11. Deliver those who are drawn towards death. Hold back those stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, surely we do not know this, does he not, he who weighs the hearts, consider it? He who keeps your soul, does he not know it? And will he not render to each man according to his deeds? If you try to say, verse 12, surely we do not know this. I, I didn't know this, Lord. I didn't know that I was supposed to go get involved in people's lives. I, I thought we were just supposed to live and let live and all this other stuff. No. Now, New Living Translation says it like this. Don't excuse yourself by saying, look, we didn't know. You know. You know when you see that person that you call brother, sister, friend. You know that you're supposed to love them enough to look at them and say, I care enough about you to say, I want you to be right with the Lord. And I want every aspect of your life to be right with the Lord. So guess what? We're going to have this awkward conversation right now. Because this is the right thing to have. And I'm going to do it because I'm prayed up, spirit-led, 
humbly in love and truth because I want to see you restored in Jesus Christ. As it says in Proverbs 27, 5 and 6, open rebuke is better than love carefully concealed. You can't sit here and say, I love him and I love him so much I'm telling him nothing. No, I love you so much I'm going to talk to you about it. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. I am your friend and I care enough about you to say I'm concerned about you spiritually. This is not lining up with the Bible. What's going on here? We have to be willing to do that to the point of awkwardness and difficulties, etc. Because we have to fear God more than we fear a man. So I'm going to close with this. If you're here this morning and there's something you know that's not right in your life, you know that. The Holy Spirit's convicting you. You know that. Today's the day to make it right. Marv, are we still finishing with the same song, Come to the Altar? Love that song. Love the words of that song. Number two, if you're here this morning and you got somebody that's a friend in the Lord and you know something's not right in their life, get prayed up and get ready to talk to them because you care. Because you care. If you have unsaved people, deliver them from death because you care to go represent Jesus Christ to them. Folks, we can't say we love people and then watch them fall right into the pit. Love motivates us. Ray Comfort has this great example that he uses. He talks about how Christians a lot of times pray for boldness, which is true. That's biblical. Pray for boldness. He says, but also pray for love. He says, he gives this example. He says, imagine you see this body of water that is instant, almost hypothermia death. It is that cold, ice, etc. You would not want to be in that water for anything. But now all of a sudden, you notice a three-year-old fell in the water. What are you doing? You're jumping in that water. Why? Love. Love motivates you to jump in that water to get there to get the person out. I hope that love motivates you today to have a conversation with somebody about Jesus Christ because you care enough about them. I can't imagine someone saying, my heart breaks for my coworker who's not saved and my heart breaks so much that I never mention Jesus to him. Or my heart breaks for my brother and sister in the Lord who's got themselves caught in sin and they're stumbling towards death. And my heart breaks for them so much that I never said anything to them about it. Wow. Boy, let's just take this, put this into practice, and do this biblically here. Mark, you want to come forward for the final song?